Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments. We do this by providing insight and access to successful fund managers and investors across multiple asset classes. And I am your host, Pascal Wagner. And today we have on the show uh, Ian Milligan-Pate, who also lives here in Colorado. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a bio or a background on Ian, uh, just so we know who we're, who we're speaking with here. So Ian is a husband, father of two. He's based, uh, here in Denver, Colorado. Like I said, he spent the last 18 years building his career in software and SaaS industries and is currently a vice president of sales for a, a publicly traded cybersecurity company. He's been investing since 2013, and he's been investing passively in real estate and other alternative asset classes as an LP since 2020, and he's invested in more than 30 different positions as an LP, focusing primarily on income-generating investments that produce long-term cash flow. So uh, awesome bio there, Ian. I'm excited to jump in. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was mentioning before this call that... Uh, I wanted to jump right in, but you have a very interesting story that that I think could relate to our audience, which is just tell us about how you started eventually investing in private investments, funds and syndications. Yeah, I'll I'll give you the the backstory and you can cut me short if it's too long. But, you know, in a nutshell, I did the, uh, you know, the traditional route that they tell you to go, go to school, get good grades so you can go to a good college, get good grades there so you can get a good job, uh, climb the corporate ladder and uh, try to sock money away into, you know, your 401k and IRAs and, you know, mutual funds and those types of traditional, you know, public security investments along the way. And, um, you know, I, I realized at some point that that wasn't the game I necessarily wanted to play for the long run, um, you know, to, to work in corporate and until I'm, you know, 65 or 70 years old and then hopefully have a nest egg. And uh, when I, was know, that? What, like, how old were you? Like, how far into your career? Yeah, well, we, we started getting interested, my wife and I, uh, in, in real estate uh, when, when we were around 30. Um, so that's, that's about 10 years ago. Um, so we bought our first rental property in 2013. We did a crash course seminar at a local community college, taught us how to evaluate single family rentals. And, you know, we had saved up a little bit and, um, you know, bought a rental back at the time when you could still buy houses in Denver for, for 200 grand. And, um, you know, that worked out well. We ended up getting a second rental. Then a couple of years later, got a duplex, uh, executed a couple cash out refis, bought a fourplex. So we were up to eight doors and, um, you know, we were kind of at an inflection point of, okay, do we want to keep scaling in small residential properties? Do we want to go into multifamily and scale up or do we want to do something else? And where we landed was that we wanted to go into mobile home parks. Um, we had been learning about that asset class, listening to a lot of podcasts, reading up, and it just seemed like a great cash flowing asset that kind of fit our goals. 
So we sold all the residential properties we had. We cashed out, took the chips off the table. You know, the, the market had appreciated really well in Denver. And we went all in on mobile home parks. Um, took a while, was harder than I thought it would be to actually land one. We went under contract twice, fell out of contract twice in due diligence. Finally ended up closing on one uh, in 2020. And, uh, you know, the goal was to build a big portfolio of mobile home parks and really scale that out and, and build a lot of passive income. And uh, the realization I had pretty quickly after we bought that mobile home park is that it was not passive at all. Um, and uh, it was actually very operationally intensive and that with my job being as demanding as it is, there was no way I was going to be able to manage a whole portfolio uh, of these things. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And, and then from there, what happened? Yeah. So um, I, along the way, I had made one or two passive investments, kind of friends and family deals with with operators I knew who were buying, you know, multifamily apartment complexes where I had taken a small LP position. And I, I started to just look at the chessboard and kind of put the pieces together that actually, you know, if I just went all in on LP investing and plowed as much as I could into that um, and really built a portfolio up that way that, you know, it aligned much better with my lifestyle goals, which is really to create, you know, lifestyle freedom and time freedom um, rather than, you know, being in uh, in the operator side and, you know, having to to manage and, and own and operate properties. Yeah. Something I know that we've talked about, I even remember when you were putting in an offer on on one of the mobile home parks and and maybe even Pueblo, I think it was. Um, but uh, something we talk a lot about on the show is this idea, or, or at least I'm bought into this mindset of um, focusing on your cash cow, the thing that makes you your income and brings you a lot of money and then figuring out how to diversify and shove that into into other investments uh, so that you can stay focused um, when you're investing as an LP. Do you think about it that way? Uh, or or how is your thinking and investing and being an operator versus a, a passive investor involved, uh, evolved over time? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, part of the realization I had when I was, you know, going through this with the mobile home park was that my biggest asset is my W-2. Right. Like that generates way more than the mobile home park or any one real estate investment is going to for me. So from a leverage standpoint, what makes the most sense is for me to double down and maximize my W2 earnings and then take the cash that that kicks off and plow it into these passive investments. And, you know, passive investing is still a lot of work. But what, what I really like about it is, you know, you do the work once. You make the decision at the end of due diligence. It's either a yes or a no. And either way, it's done. And from there forward, it is truly completely passive, right? You know, for better or for worse. Or sometimes you probably yeah. wish you had more control of the way the investment's going. But but either way, like, it, you know, when it's going well as it's supposed to, I mean, it, it truly is the only investment that is, you know, mailbox money, right? With no strings attached. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe, like, I'd, I'd love to dive into, you know, you said that, uh, when you first started, you started buying a couple pieces of real estate and then you flipped, you flipped that into the mobile home parks. Like walk me through what was the switch? What was the turning point where like there was a moment where you sat down and you, you were like, okay, fuck this. I don't, I don't want to do this, uh, anymore. Like what were the things that you were doing in your investments? Like give us, give us the detail of the day to day. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you the, the painful, gory details. I, I was uh, 
we bought this mobile home park in January and uh, I think we were probably 30 to 45 days into it. And I'll, I'll never forget. I was on a, a ski weekend. I was in steamboat Springs, staying in a hotel room with my family and three in the morning, I see my cell phone ringing from a number in Illinois in the area code where we own this mobile home park. And I'm like, Oh, this, this can't be good. And it's uh, one of the residents who lives in a single family property that's on the, on the park. And in the basement of that single family property is the, all the private infrastructure that the park runs on. So the, the well tanks for the well water and the controls for the septic system. And he, this guy's calling me oh, freaking no. out. You know, I answer the phone all groggy and he's like, Hey, the basement is filling up with water. There's a burst pipe. And, you know, at this point I was just like, I don't know what to do. We have no plumbing contacts. We have nothing, you know, I don't have an onsite maintenance guy. So, you know, spent the next two hours on the phone, you know, frantically making calls, trying to get a 24 hour plumber in there, shut off the water system, fix it. And it was just, it was an ongoing saga after that. It didn't end just in those two hours. Um, but it was that and those kind of things where it was like, okay, like, there's no way I'm going to do this. This is, this is way too active. And I think, you know, if you do build a portfolio at some point, you get economies of scale as an operator and you can build layers of management in your company and third-party property management potentially and, and have these different pieces. But until you get to scale, you're kind of in no man's land, especially with mobile home parks. You know, it is very much a like self-operated, self-managed business. There aren't a lot of options for property management. So it's a, it's a contact sport, especially with that tenant class can, can be, you know, can be pretty demanding in terms of collections and the other issues you have to deal with. And uh, I just realized like, this is not for me and this does not align with, with my goals at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. Okay. So, so you went in with the idea of like, look, I'm trying to get cash flow. Was it strictly cash flow? Were some things equity growth? Like, how do you think, about investing in different asset classes and what your really what your real investment objective is. Yeah, I mean, my thinking on this has changed over time. Originally, it was kind of what I was saying earlier, which is, hey, you build a nest egg, and then someday you retire and you have this big nest egg, you know, saved up, and you draw it down, you know, uh, in, until you die or leave it to your, you know, your heirs. Um, I started to learn, you know, around 27, eight, 2017, 2018, uh, you know, about this idea of cash flow. And as you know, in GoBundance, we talk about, you know, your, your vertical income, which is your job or anything you do to trade time for money. And then your horizontal income, which is income that comes in without you having to trade time for money, right? It's the more passive income. And so I got this idea in my head about building my horizontal income up to the point where it exceeds, you know, one, my cost of living and two, hopefully at some point exceeds the money that I make in my W2 job. Uh, and, you know, for me, that's, you know, that's the ultimate freedom, right? Because at that point, you know, you can keep your job if you like it, which I like mine, but you, you don't have to, right. You're, you're not a slave to it. You don't, you know, you don't need it. Right. And so, um, I really focus on cash flow when it comes to investing equity growth is great. It's great to have capital events because you can redeploy that to create more cash flow. Um, but I don't do a lot of investing in things that are purely equity growth, you know, like for example, you know, new construction development or something like that, where you're waiting on a, a big payday at the end of a deal. I tend to focus on deals that really start to generate cash flow with, you know, early on in the deal cycle. Why do you think that is? Is it like you want to have that freedom, that optionality to kind of, you know, be your, like, although you're working at a W2, you, you, you then have the control if you have all the extra cash flow. It's uh, 
Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, it's it's income based instead of accumulation based, because I think, you know, the accumulation based mindset, like for me, the realization I came to with a 401k is it, you know, I think it's kind of a trap, right? You you plow your money into this thing. You can't get it out until your retirement age. At that point, you have a lot less use for it, right? So I want to have access to my money now. And then, you know, the other thing with 401k that I think is kind of a misnomer is it, it's not actually tax free, right? It's just it's tax deferred. You still pay taxes, right? As you draw that money out in retirement, it's you're just kicking the can down the road, which, you know, there's something to be said for that. I mean, tax deferral is good if you can push things out. But the, the notion that financial advisors push on people a lot of times is they say, oh, well, when you're in retirement, you'll, you'll have less income. So you'll be in a lower tax bracket. So when you pull that money out of your 401k, you'll be paying taxes at a lower rate than you would if you paid it now and just invested it in, you know, non-tax deferred investments. To me, that's totally backwards. Like, I, I'm not planning to be poor when right. I get to retirement age. I don't, right. I don't I plan on making more money when I'm old. Yeah. I'm not excited for the idea of, you know, planning to live off 40 grand a year. And that's kind of what they're peddling. I think sometimes um, I plan to continue to build my wealth and, and to be in a great spot when I'm in retirement age. So um, for me, it just, that was where I was like, okay, I'm going to scratch the, you know, the tax deferred, the IRAs, the 401ks really focus on building a portfolio now that, that I have control over that generates income. Yeah. So, so what does that makeup look like? So, so are you, is pretty much most of your net worth in private investments? Do you have stuff in equities? What, why not equities like the stock market? Yeah. Yeah. I have a little bit in the stock market. Um, for me, the benefit of that is really more liquidity than anything. Um, you know, just kind of rainy day money rather than keeping, you know, too much in cash. But the vast majority of my portfolio, my net worth is in private investments, um, mostly in those, those passive LP positions. And I've done about 30 investments. Few of those have gone full cycle and I've reinvested. Um, but, uh, you know, get, getting better and better. I'd like to think with each one as I, as I learn. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we focused on, uh, I mean, is the re actually, I want to take a step back and say, okay, I mean, there are ways that you can cash flow in the equities market. Like you sure. can buy dividend stocks or REITs mm -hmm. or, um, and so because you're very cash flow focused, um, why not, why not those or why, why private investments? Like there is some risk. There is a, you have to learn the asset class. You have to get into it. What, what, what got you so into, into private investments over anything else? Yeah. I, I think, you know, the big thing I look for is asymmetric risk, right? Um, so the deals where I can get greater upside with lower risk profile. And I think my competitive advantage as an LP investor is I understand real estate. I understand how to underwrite it, understand how to underwrite the operators. Whereas if I'm looking at a stock or a publicly traded REIT, you know, for me, that's a throw of the dice. Right. And so much of, you know, the valuation is just based on market sentiment. I mean, we've seen that in the last year, you know, like you look, there's tech companies that are, you know, performing phenomenally well and the stocks have still been hammered by 75% just because of macro and market sentiment. So I like things that I'd like to think I have more control over, more predictability in, um, and that, you know, cash flow kind of rain or shine, right? Even if, even if real estate valuations go down, if you're in properties that are performing well from an NOI standpoint and have good debt, they're going to continue to kick off distributions, um, you know, e even when, when values maybe, uh, maybe compressed a little bit.
Yeah. And then, and for the audience, NOI, uh, net operating income, essentially the, uh, revenue minus expenses before the debt service. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, if they have great NOI, then they should be able to continue to perform. Um, so Ian, you've invested in over 30 different funds or syndications and projects. So, uh, and you've invested across an array, uh, before this call, you mentioned you invested into multifamily, self-storage, retail, mobile home parks, industrial, debt lending, ATMs, oil and gas, crypto mining, e-commerce, like the gamut. Um, there are many investors who stick with one asset class or stick in real estate because that's what they know. Why, uh, why have you ventured out into the, into the open? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I, um, couple things like when I set off down this path of passive investing early on, I tried to borrow some guiding principles that I learned from people who are much further along than I was and much smarter at this. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about was concentration risk. Right. And, um, you know, not having too much of your net worth in any one particular deal with any one particular operator or in any one particular asset class. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, diversification, right, to spread that risk. Now, I am super heavy in real estate and within real estate, I'm pretty heavy in multifamily, but I'm trying to get more diversified. I think it's a balance because it really depends, you know, are, are you where are you in your journey? Are you in wealth building mode or are you in wealth preservation mode? I'm still in wealth building mode. And, you know, in wealth building mode, I think you do better by making focused bets, Right. Um, if you're in wealth preservation mode, you know, everything is about diversification because you're really, you're, you know, you don't need to win. You've already win. You're just trying not to lose. Right. So um, that, that's how I think about it. And I think it's a balance because, you know, I, I've done well in the real estate investments for the most part. Um, the couple times where I've really got upside down on an investment is when I've strayed far outside of that and kind of gotten out of my swim lane and, and my zone of expertise. So, you know, the two worst performing investments I have are uh, the e-commerce and the crypto, right? Which were both, you know, kind of chasing shiny objects. And those are the ones I really got, you know, smacked over the head on. So, you know, that's, that's a lesson I've had to learn the hard way. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, uh, let's dive into that a little bit because I maybe have a slightly differing opinion and I'd like to see how you think about it. So to me, I'm imagining you invested in a crypto fund or syndication before uh, the market tanked. And so, uh, yeah. And so um, to me, I'm thinking about it's like, okay, well, I'm investing over time and crypto I view as a long-term investment. And we know that there are cycles in that. So to me, I'm like, you know, I've bought in, uh, all across the spectrum have been dollar cost averaging into it. But, mm-hmm. but do you, do you really feel like, uh, those maybe have gone sideways for you or just that the market is temporarily down? Like, are, are you like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to invest in these asset classes anymore. Or? I'm not anti crypto or anti e-commerce. I think, um, yes, I definitely, uh, you know, nailed the timing uh, 100% in the wrong direction by investing right at the peak. Um, so I'll own that one. You know, look, maybe crypto 
has great long-term prowess. Maybe it's a good inflation hedge, although it seems to move more up and down with the NASDAQ than it does, you know, moving against the dollar um, and kind of behave more like a, a tech stock. Um, but I, I think, so for me, it's not so much that those are bad asset classes. It's that they're outside of my swim lane in terms of what I really deeply understand. And the way you de-risk any investment is through knowledge and education, right? Versus for me, I was jumping into something speculative because the return profile looked great when I really didn't truly understand how to underwrite it. And so, you know, probably deserve to get smacked in the head for that reason, right? Yeah, well, verdict's still out on that one. So we'll, we'll circle back in a couple of years and see if you still feel that way about it. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into, you know, one of the things I want to start getting into more is is understanding um, one things that have gone wrong. Um, and before the show, we we talked about one of your syndicated deals and and lessons you've learned uh, from evaluating different real estate deals. Let's let's talk about uh, one of your real estate deals where you're you're getting squeezed right now. Sure. Yeah, I've got a couple that that fall in the same bucket, and there's there's a common pattern, which is the, the deals that I'm in. And these are primarily multifamily uh, syndications, one fund, and then a couple of like individual asset syndications where they are on a floating rate loan. Right. So these are deals that were purchased in, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022, you know, at the time interest rates hovering down around 3% and, uh, you know, fast forward to today. And, you know, those rates have more than doubled um, on a lot of deals and, you know, operators have the operators all have rate caps, but even so when you're, you know, your debt service is at a 3% rate and it jumps to six uh, you're, you're eating into your cash flow pretty significantly. Um, so that's, you know, that's been a real, uh, lesson for me in terms of something I'll take forward into the next cycle, which is, you know, hold off on those floating rate debt deals because it doesn't last forever. And the other thing that's happening with those deals is even if they're performing okay, you know, with the rate cap in place, the pricing on those rate caps has gone up like crazy. So that, you know, those rate caps expire at some point, you know, after whatever, 12, 24, 36 months, and then the operator has to buy a new rate cap policy. Well, what the lenders are doing is they're making the operators escrow a ton of money to cover that future price of the new rate cap. So in some cases they're, you know, the, the lenders telling the operator, Hey, you've got to escrow 20 grand a month to get this new rate cap. That's going to cost you a quarter million dollars in two years. Right. And so that comes straight out of your cash flow, too. So the net of all that is, you know, these deals are they're all OK. I don't think any of them are, you know, are going to be deals where the, the property gets turned back over to the bank or anything like that. But they are deals where I have capital invested and I'm not getting any cash flow distributions. The distributions are totally on on pause while they try to kind of work their way out of this hole or, or hope that, you know, the rates go back down at some point here in the, in the future. Yes. Yeah, so what do you think the thinking was behind that? I mean. Right. Like I'm pretty sure uh, when interest rates were at 3%, yeah. no one thought that they were going to go to, I mean, I'm sure there are people who thought that it might go to zero, but I right. think that the logical thing was like, okay, these rates are going to go up at some point. What was, what was, what do you think is the logic behind going after these floating rate caps when you would want to lock in long-term debt in, in these deals? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone was underwriting 
interest rates doubling in a year, right? So everyone was kind of, yeah, interest rates are going to go up, but, you know, very slowly. And, you know, that's at the time when people were still talking about inflation being transitory and, and those kind of things, right? So um, that was definitely a miss that, that I don't think anyone saw coming. Um, yeah, I think the other thing is when you get to the top of a market cycle, what we saw in 2021 and 2022 is all the operators, not all, many operators were stretching their underwriting to make deals work, right? And there's different ways you can do that. But one of the ways you can do that is by, you know, taking on that floating rate debt, right? And betting on that that low rate, you know, hopefully staying low or, you know, being able to refinance into fixed rate debt in the future at a low interest rate. And, um, you know, everybody wanted to keep acquiring properties. There was tons of capital on the sidelines looking for deals. And so I think a lot of people did, you know, stretch their underwriting in different ways to make deals work. Yeah. So, so what's the takeaway here? Is it like you, you know, don't invest in floating rate caps or, or that's still a, you know, something you're willing to invest in, but it's just, you know, have a better idea of where we are in the market cycle. Yeah. I think I probably would not invest in deals with floating rate debt again. Um, you know, I think there's there's plenty of ways to get good long term fixed rate debt, you know, whether it's it's bank agency, you know, uh, et cetera. And there's plenty of operators that continue to lock up deals with fixed rate debt and, and did even through the market peak or, you know, maybe maybe weren't as active buying, but also didn't end up in this situation where they have deals that are a little bit sideways. So, yeah, for me, it's probably something I'll stay away from in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the future, so one of the things you mentioned also before the call is you have somewhat of a process of how you go about evaluating deals yeah. uh, and having invested in 30 different ones, walk yeah. us through what that process looks like for you. Yeah. I think, um, you know, a good core principle, and I'm sure all your listeners have heard this before is you bet on the jockey, not the horse. Right. Um, you know, a, a great operator, you know, can can turn an OK property into into a good property and a bad operator can turn a, a good property into a, a really poor property. Right. From a performance standpoint. Um, so I, I definitely try to focus on on the operator. Um, I like, you know, finding trusted operators that I can invest with, you know, over and over again. I don't want to have to find 50 different operators, right? I'd rather have a small group that, that I really have grown to trust and, you know, can continue to invest in their deals. And that streamlines my underwriting too, because then I don't have to, you know, underwrite the operator again. I just have to underwrite the deal if I already trust them. Um, so I, I look for track record. That's the big thing, you know, especially today, there's a lot of people that have jumped into real estate syndication just in the last couple of years. Um, nothing wrong with that. There are some great people that have jumped in, but it also means they don't have a track record that's as long. They haven't lived through a down cycle. They probably didn't live through, you know, 2008 as an operator. And so ideally I look for operators that, that have been through a down cycle that went through 2008 or even earlier cycles than that. Um, and I'm looking for how they've performed throughout that. Right. And going back and asking for, you know, what were the results of their past deals? What did the pro formas versus the actuals end up looking like? Um, and then talking to other investors that have invested with that operator. I think that's huge. I always look for, you know, referrals, try to find people I know who have invested with them. I never want to invest because of that, because I, I, I have been burned before, you know, kind of piggybacking on someone else's underwriting and then not doing my own proper due diligence. But I think it is an important data point to talk to, to current investors 
operators that find, you know, people that, that they really know, like, and trust as operators. Totally. And, and did they communicate well? Did they, you know, absolutely mention anything when things went sideways and, um, you know, were they, uh, proactive instead of reactive, uh, all of, all of those kinds of things. Um, there were two funds that you mentioned, uh, that you currently really love, uh, and that I think are really interesting. Let's dive into those. The one you talked about was the Polaris fund. Let's, you're, you're really interested in debt lending. Tell us about why you like that fund particularly, dive into the strategy and, and why you think it makes sense for you. Yeah, yeah. Polaris is, is an interesting um, offering. It's a private REIT uh, that uh, is a debt fund in the industrial cannabis space. Um, so think of... Uh, you know, a large scale cannabis grow operator that's going to have, you know, a, a commercial grade kind of warehouse and, and grow operation that they need to, to finance and build out. Um, so they're looking for, you know, a, a loan on that property. Um, and there's an inefficiency in the market because, you know, as cannabis is still federally illegal, um, a lot of the major national lenders uh, that you would traditionally see in the industrial space won't, won't touch those properties, they can't touch those properties. Um, but as a, as a private REIT, uh, Polaris comes in and offers these loans. And so there's kind of this arbitrage where because there's a shortage of lenders, they're able to command a higher interest rate on these loans um, and then can pass through those returns to their LPs. So I really like that. It's, you know, for me, it's been a good vehicle. I have a pretty decent position with them, pays monthly cash flow distributions, um, you know, has a, a liquidity component. I think there's some gating around redemptions, but you, you know, you can, you can redeem from it. It's, it's kind of semi-liquid. Um, so it has a lot of the things that, that I look for in an investment. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is, is I think about, okay, eventually my thesis is that cannabis will become legalized across the United States, at which point, um, lending from banks would be fair game for a fund like this or for, for, for those kind of facilities. How do you think about that risk when you invest like pretty interesting deal? Totally see, totally makes sense how you're getting the cash flow and, and how the whole operation works. How do you think about that kind of risk? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, it's real. And I think what you'll see, and I think Polaris has already seen some of this is, you know, compression on the rate of return over time. Right. That'll be the net effect of that as more lenders get in the space. I don't think it's a risk to the fund or their current, you know, book. Um, but I do think as it gets more competitive, you know, rates could compress there. And I think they've already seen some of that. I think early on, prior to me investing with them, they were, were returning, you know, 12 to 15 percent to their LPs. Now it's more like, a, you know. 10 to 11, 12% range, uh, but, but still a really good return, you know, similar to what you would get if you're doing your own hard money lending, except you're not having to deal with the, you know, the risks and headaches that can come with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I also imagine if at that point when it becomes legalized, the banks just refinance the loan that Polaris has with them and Polaris returns the capital back to their LPs and, yep. and then the fund's over. Yep, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And these are all, you know, these are all first position loans that are, you know, um, backed by the property itself. Right. So, you know, in the event they have to foreclose, you know, they're, they're in a good position, a strong position, you know, on, on these loans in terms of LTV. Yeah. And then, 
And then uh, another fun that you talked about, which I kind of just want to dive into before we wrap up, which is uh, mobile home parks. You're super invested in the mobile home park space. Uh, you bought your own. Now you're an LP in some. Why, why do you like mobile home parks so much? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One is, you know, there's there's tons of demand drivers around a more affordable housing, right? We've seen what's happened with apartment rents. They've shot through the roof the last, you know, few years. So there's there's more and more need for affordable housing and mobile home parks are kind of the last rung on that ladder in terms of, you know, true affordable housing that works in a free market system without having to be government subsidized. Right. Um, where somebody can own their home and rent a lot for four or five hundred bucks a month. Um, so, so that's one. The other is there's a huge moat around that business. And the reason for that is they're not building more mobile home parks. So there's actually a decreasing number of mobile home parks every year in the United States. And the reason for that primarily is cities don't like them. You know, they think they're an eyesore. And so they won't permit new ones for the most part. So. You know, you, you have this moat because you can't go in and just build a new mobile home park down the street like you could a shopping center or an apartment complex. Right. So so those are great things. The other thing I like is from an operational standpoint, um, you know, they tend to run more efficiently because the operator doesn't own the homes. So in, in the ideal scenario, they just own the, you know, the lots, the dirt, and they rent those lots to the tenants, but the tenants own their own homes. So when a water heater goes out or a toilet, you know, runs or something needs to be fixed, you know, that, that tenant owns their home and they're responsible for those maintenance costs. So it can run at a, a lower expense ratio than, for example, maybe a, an apartment complex or another type of asset. So really like all those things about it. And, and because of that, you can, you know, if you find the right operator and the right, uh, the right deal or the right fund, uh, they can generate great returns. Yeah. And from my understanding, the strategy is, is there's tons of mom and pop operators out there that are not, you know, professionally managed. They're not building big teams and they're, uh, they're still running some of these. And then, so you go in and you, you buy them from a, um, or a fund that you invest in or both invest in a mobile home park, uh, make it professionally managed, streamline, increase revenues, lower expenses, and then flip it around and turn it to a REIT. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're, they're kind of ripe for, you know, aggregation, right. And, and more professional operators to come in and buy these. A lot of them are, like you said, mom and pop owned, you know, some of them are still owned by the, the family that built the original park, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and so for that reason, a lot of times the rents haven't been kept up to market or uh, there's just a lot of inefficiencies in the way it's being run. And so there's a big opportunity to come in and expand the, the NOI and, and grow the value of the property. Yeah, man. So many different unique asset classes you can invest into with different strategies. I love it. Yeah. Ian, um, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, you were, you were a pleasure to, to talk to and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you around. All right. Thanks a lot. Let's go.